Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Alana. And I'm Nina. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Sachi. We, we are, are the Feminations. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our fourth episode of Feminations. This is Nina, and we're recording this episode on Sunday, May 3rd. If this is your first time tuning in to listen to us, welcome. This podcast is born out of a class project, the Women's Studies 4900S, integrating theory and practice under the guidance of Dr. Josie Leenbach at the University of Georgia. This platform has been a way for us, five Asian American women, to discuss a wide range of topics utilizing our own lived experiences as Asian American feminists. In our most recent episode, Let's Get Political, Teresa did an awesome job of walking us through domestic and global politics in the context of being Asian American. So if you have the chance, be sure to check that out. For today's episode, um, representation, Asian representation in the media, including film, television, the music industry, and more, as well as unpacking our relationship with beauty ideals, given the millions of messages about beauty and our bodies that we all have no doubt received as as Asian American women being brought up in America. So let's dive right in. Okay. So what does representation mean to you guys? Like, why is it something that's important? I think, you know, representation is really important to me Um, as an avid fan of pop culture and media and movies and TV shows, like being able to see someone who looks like me in my favorite media makes me feel like, Oh shit. I'm, I'm like, you know, like I can be strong. I can be a hero. I can be um, a person that's a protagonist, you know, for younger folks, when they see themselves represented in media, they are infused with the confidence to navigate the world with um, power and surety and uh, just confidence. And I think representation for me has always given me the necessary boost to follow my dreams, to follow my passions and to feel like, okay, this space might not be, this space might not have been made for me, but I'm going to make myself and carve a space out for myself. I'm going to be honest, I feel like growing up, I didn't realize how much I needed representation until I, there was some inkling of it. So just so random, but that show, Jesse on Disney Channel, they had an Indian character in it. Yes. Oh my God. I literally looked it up today. Yeah. Terrible Indian accent, like always wore Indian clothes, just like a very stereotypical Indian character. But I was like, damn, like okay, like, that was kind of cool to see an Indian person on screen. It's, it, obviously, representation is increasing slowly. And so, you know, like, when the Mindy Project came out, like, they're, like, just reading her book for me was an important thing. And, like, honestly, it's just so embarrassing, but Lemonade Mouse, Naomi Scott and Lemonade Mouse, she was the oh, yeah. beautiful Indian girl who She's got the hot white dude. And she was, That's, like, the bass player. And she had, yeah, and, like, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I watched that movie all the time in sophomore high school. So I was like, yes, like mm-hmm. representation. Even if I didn't always agree with or I didn't love the way it actually ended up playing out, I was like, damn, like I exist. I feel heard. I feel seen. Like this can be part of pop culture. And that, but that's when I realized it was, it was like really important to me. Yeah, this is Sachi here. Um, but like, I think that I'm kind of on like the same boat as you, Ahana, in that like I didn't, I have a complicated like feeling with representation simply because I didn't have it a lot as a 
child. And so when I did have that, like one or two shows that I was like, oh my God, there's like an Indian person or like a South Asian person. I felt weirdly seen and warm, but at the same time, it made me kind of angry because like we had Ravi and like, bless his heart, love him, not his fault that he was portrayed in the like light that he was because that was the character he was made to play. But like when you have that stereotypical representation of you, you're like, wait, like this is cool. I'm here. I see myself, but this isn't like my experience at all. And this isn't the experience of the folks that are around me and like people that have the same experiences as me. And so it also like kind of like lit a fire under me because I was just like, now I want the next like point in the road and the pathway is like to get someone who looks a little bit more like, us and who looks like who embodies that experience a little bit more and so I think that's like kind of been like my driving thing these past couple of years is like trying to find that accurate representation and like I think I still crave it because even with I'm I'm sure we're going to discuss the these things like later in the episode but even the representation we have right now with like Raj and the Big Bang Theory and like they're still pretty stereotypical and I still have this like fire in my heart where it's like I need someone to look a little bit more like me and like represent what I went through in life and like I don't have that just yet yeah I think that's like a really good point like what both of you are saying is that like it's something that I think about more now than I thought about in the moment probably because I think that when I was like going through my childhood, it wasn't, it wasn't as explicit to me what I was missing until like looking back, I think about like weirdness and awkwardness about like how I can interact or how I think of myself compared to white people, I think comes from like some of that representation that I saw. Yeah. uh, This is Jessica going off of that, Nina, I feel like you touched on how like representation really dictates what is considered normal and normative and like the default because it's communicating stories and ideas about people and their lives to like millions of other people around the country and around the world who will never meet you. But if they see someone who looks like you, that might give them a little bit more of an idea of what you're like and what your life is like. But as we've touched on, like that visibility is really fraught. And if it's done wrong and by the wrong people and for the wrong reasons, then it can end up casting people in a worse light. Um, but I definitely agree with what y'all said about like not really being super conscious about representation as a child. And I think that really just comes from the fact that I just really internalized and absorbed the message that whiteness was normal. Um, and I wasn't super conscious about the fact that I was different, but I definitely remember this like eternal feeling as a child of, never feeling quite satisfied with the way I looked or the way my life was. And it wasn't something that you could ever crystallize into like one specific thing. Cause I don't ever remember explicitly looking at myself in the mirror and saying like, I wish I were white, but I definitely did feel like, Oh, like I don't look as pretty as the people I see on TV. Like I don't have the same experiences as those people. Like I, I just don't have a normal life or a normal face. Um, and again, like never really questioned why that was and never really put it into explicitly racial language, but that, I think that just goes to show how impressionable kids are and how much representation matters for young people and just how much mainstream representation really normalizes whiteness. Growing up, (laughs) my mom was like obsessed with Nikki Haley. So like the, um, (laughs) governor of South Carolina 
uh, Republican governor of South Carolina. Oh. <laughs> and um, my mom was obsessed with her and would always be like, Hannah, like, Nikki Haley. Like, always talking about Nikki Haley. And this is like, my parents are like Democrats, like, don't vote Republican. And I was like, Mom, like, you know she's a conservative. Not to say, like, I was just casually being like, why are you so obsessed with her when, like, we don't even vote conservative? And she was just like, because she's Indian. And, like, it's just interesting. She also would be like, well, Nikki Haley, like, married a white person and, like, converted to Christianity. So if you ever want to make it in this world, like, just think about that. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, just this, like, <laughs> it was so funny to me. But I was like, wow. Just the fact that, like, I don't know. I just thought this was so funny that she's, like, so obsessed with Nikki Haley. And I was like, this is so random that, like, representation can be that important, though. And, like, kids, like, matter more than, like, other really fundamental things as well. So. It just makes me think of like you don't realize you're missing a certain representation until you get it. And then when you get it, you're like, oh, where has this been all my life? Because that's was yeah. exactly how I felt when I heard the news about Kelly Marie Tran being cast in Star Wars. When I saw the casting announcement and she shared the same last name as me. And at that time, like her uh, casting photo or her headshot, she had bangs and glasses and she had like a round face. Like she looked like people that I knew, you know? And her family, both of her parents are refugees. Like that's, like my parents are refugees. My parents are immigrants. I, my last name is Tran, you know? Like I saw that and I'm a huge fan of Star Wars. So when I saw that, I was literally, like my mind was blown and I became just so invested in Star Wars. I just felt like, oh my God, I finally got it. Like, like I saw that and I was like, I saw her and I was like, Star Wars is finally a place for me. Like, I finally feel like I belong. I finally feel like I'm starting to, like, this is what white people feel all the time, you know? Like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? Something else you said that, like, really, like, resonated with me was, like, with the your concept of like investment and like how much I guess like mental energy and thought we put into like things that rep like may have the possibility of representing us. Um, and that's kind of how I felt with this new like Netflix series that just came out. Never have I ever, like I heard about it at the beginning of this year through like my social network, um, like Mindy Kaling and all those people. And, like, I heard about that original casting call and all that kind of stuff. And, like, it was really interesting. And I was, like, honestly so excited because I was, like, wait a second. Like, there is going to be a Netflix show, like, an actual series featuring a protagonist who is Asian-American. And she's South Asian. Um, well, South Asian-American. And then she's also South Indian. Um, and, like, it was, like, it was just so amazing for me to think that, like, there was going to be someone representing what could potentially be me and I became so invested in that show like I followed it throughout the entire like time period in which it was being filmed I was like watching Mindy Kaling like post all these things I followed like the main character um on Instagram and like was like fangirling over it and like when the time period was about to like when the time period came for it to be rolled out I was like plugging it on all my social media because I was like guys this is like the first like big thing that we have ever had and like that's a pretty big deal and like sure. I'm sure we'll have this discussion it wasn't my favorite I watched all of it I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts about it I'm not gonna like give any spoilers 
but I think that like that investment that I made with it, like really played a big role in my life these past couple of like months, not only because it was one like inkling of hope that I could hold on to during like a freaking global pandemic, but like, it was also just like that first like ounce of representation that I felt like Mm -hmm. I was actually seen. Um, and I think that investment was like kind of driving for me. Exactly. That's how I felt with Kelly Marie Tran. And then with this most previous Star Wars film where they basically cut her role in half and gave her like what a minute and a half long of screen time, literally one minute and 30 seconds of screen time in a two hour long movie, like by erasing, essentially just erasing her entire role. It was such a clear, like giving into that toxic white fanboy um, fan base of being like, yeah, you win, like you win white fanboys of Star Wars, you win. Not the diverse uh, woman and non-binary fans of Star Wars. No, you guys don't get to have this one. And also the first woman of color character in Star Wars. You don't get to have her anymore. I actually saw this, this tweet by Danny Fernandez, who I don't know who that is, but says, people, POC writers, your story doesn't have to be rooted in trauma. It doesn't have to represent the entire community. It doesn't have to be a commentary on racial issues. If they can have a billion shows about a group of friends, then we can make like lighthearted shows about our friends too. And so I kind of wanted to bring this up, or I wanted to bring this up, and kind of ask y'all about your opinions on that, and like, how do we feel about like the complexity with people of color, like having responsibility for their communities more or less, because like they're the ones in the spotlight if they're like writing or acting or whatever. But then on the flip side, like white people do whatever they want. <laughs> like there are so many movies and shows about a variety of things. And so like, why can't people of color have the same like freedom to just like do what they want and say what they want? Um, I want to hear y'all's thoughts. Yeah. So I think this is like kind of part of the conversation, like the internal conversation I've been having with myself about never have I ever. Um, because like in the beginning I was like super critical. I was like, this is like not representative of Indian like girls at all. Like this is not the experience that I had, nor like was the experience of my friends. And then I started thinking a little bit more and like reading a lot of those like same tweets and articles. And like, I think that like my initial reaction was just coming from like this place of wanting to be represented and wanting to be seen. But then like, I think the more mature response, honestly, is like understanding that we don't have that much going for us at the moment. Like we don't have that much representation. And this is the first show to my knowledge that like shows an Indian American girl going through like American life. And like, I put a lot of my hopes into it because it was the first, but it's not fair for me to want that show to represent everything that I went through along with everything else that everyone else went through. Like it's not going to be a universal experience because everyone experiences life in such a different way. And I think that it becomes hard and we put all this pressure on, you know, Mindy Kaling and the producers of the show to give us this like perfect show that encapsulates everything it is to be an Indian American woman And like, it's impossible. And that standard is so incredibly high that no one will achieve it because it's just not attainable. And like, I think that it just kind of like, again, lit more of a fire under me to see like, okay, this is like another like path, another step in the path that we're taking. And eventually we'll get to all of us having our stories told. It's just going to take a little bit of time. This really reminds me of this op-ed um, that I read a couple of years ago, I think while I was taking North American Asian feminism. And it's written in the New York Times. It was 
in 2018 by the really famous author Viet Thanh Nguyen. And um, he writes about this idea of like narrative plenitude, which is just like the idea that like you have an abundance of narratives and stories um, about a certain group of people. And then the, the opposite of that is narrative scarcity. And so he wrote this op-ed in the context of Crazy Rich Asians coming out and um, talking about representation of Asian Americans in Hollywood. And if y'all don't mind, I just wanted to like highlight a few quotes from it because I feel like this really shaped the way I think about representation and sort of how to hold people accountable for how Asian Americans are represented while also recognizing that we're operating within a really scarce range of options right now. So he writes that um, I and most other Asian Americans grew up and still live in the opposite of narrative plenitude. We live in an economy of narrative scarcity in which we feel deprived and must fight to tell our own stories and fight against the stories that distort or erase us. Many Americans will take these Asian images, which are usually awful, and transfer them to any Asian American they encounter. This is narrative scarcity, the lack of characters who looked like us, and when they looked like us, were not really human. And then a little later, um, he says, this is why a single breakthrough work cannot by itself create an economy of narrative plenitude. If Crazy Rich Asians succeeds in transforming how Hollywood perceives and represents Asians and Asian Americans, it will be due not only to this one movie being good, or at least profitable, but also to the long, slow work done for decades in Hollywood by hundreds of Asian American actors, writers, directors, producers, agents, and more. Crazy Rich Asians should be just a feel-good entertainment about obscenely wealthy people of Chinese descent from Singapore that happens to star Asian Americans. But we do not have enough movies about poor Asians, or sane Asians, or Singaporeans who are not Chinese or revolutionary Asians who want to overthrow a system of global capitalism that enables the lifestyle of obscenely wealthy and oblivious Asians who would be just as problematic if they were white. So Crazy Rich Asians becomes more than what it would have to be if it were just about crazy rich white people. For Asian Americans, for if, if Crazy Rich Asians succeeds, we all do. If it fails, we all do. This is what it means to live an, in an economy of narrative scarcity. Like, this was really helpful for me, Damn. conceptualizing, like, what representation means and how much it matters and whether it's enough. Um, because it's easy to look at one, like, I remember having those complex feelings after seeing Crazy Rich Asians and being like, on some level, I felt so good. Mm -hmm. Just like understanding the language that was spoken in that movie without subtitles, getting a lot of the subtle references and like actually being able to laugh at them for once. Mm -hmm. And then on another level, I was like, okay, but these are really rich people. Yeah. And it's very East Asian centric. And like, there's definitely a couple scenes where it's like kind of racist and colorist towards the brown folks in Singapore and mm -hmm. just also just ignores their existence. And like, I felt so conflicted. Like, do I, do I like this movie? Do I not like this movie? Like, am I allowed to praise it? Um, because it is a dumb movie about like really rich people. But I think what this author is saying is that like, we're, a, we're we should be allowed to have like dumb movies. It's mm -hmm. not the fact that like this one movie came out and it's like kind of shallow and just like kind of funny, like, that's okay. The problem is that we don't have other movies 
movies to supplement that. So white people get to choose between a bunch of different movies and you get your stupid rom-coms, but you also get your really deep like indie movies that have a strong critique of capitalism or whatever. <laughs> but for us, <laughs> we have one movie a year. And so we put all of our hopes in that one movie to somehow be perfect and represent every single variation of Asian-ness and Asian-American-ness. And that's just impossible. And so it, it really helps me shift the frame from not expecting a single actor or a single piece of literature or a single film to accomplish that everything I wanted about Asian American representation and rather turning my focus to critique the system that continues to limit Asian American representation to that one movie a year. I mean, 2019, we had two films. We had Parasite and we had, um, what's that film that starred Aquafina? Farewell. We had Farewell. We had two films. Wait, when was Always Be My Maybe? 100% increase. (laughs) 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 Amazing. I think Always Be My Maybe, or or Always Be My Maybe, beginning of 2019, like early, early 2019. Okay. That was a good movie. I personally enjoyed it. You made it. We can count Parasite because it technically is a foreign film. So, like, I don't don't know if you can count Parasite. It's an Asian film. It's an Asian film. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking not Asian Americans for making it because they did. That is true. It. That is true. That is very, very true. Yeah, then Bollywood released like 500 million movies last year. representation we need. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I wanted to mention this earlier, but this was a, this is sort of like a connection to something we talked about. So I'm a writer, and I remember like in high school when I was writing these stories, I like never really specified my main protagonist and what they looked like. But in my head, I always imagined them as a white person. And I never analyzed that. I never unpacked that. It was just, it was just expected. I was like, Oh yeah, you know, she's blonde hair, blue eyes. That's normal. And that's really interesting. The supporting characters. One of the supporting characters were, were like diverse. It was like, it was like, it's like that typical cliche, like, Oh, you know, we're going to make it a diverse wink, wink show, have the main character be white. And and then show like a full cast of like people of color and different sexualities to spice things up, you know. Um, but and then I also like another like like added note to that, like when I wrote like some of the stories, for instance, like the, some of my early like high school fiction, whatever was basically that s- typical like Jenny Han contemporary story where like you wake up from a dream and then you get dressed for school, all that stuff. But I always like for Asian households, you always take your shoes off before you enter the house. But in my stories, for some reason, I never would write that. I would write, oh, yeah, I'll just take my shoes out of my closet and put them on in the, sh- in the house and just walk downstairs. And then that seems very small. That seems like like a, 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 like a little detail that, you know, wouldn't. But it isn't. Oh but my it God. isn't. But it's not because it's like then. Because I remember like reading some of my old stories again. I'd be like, this is not accurate of my experience. And why was I so fixated on making, like having the character put their shoes on from the closet? Like, why didn't, like, it's just not, you know? And that just. You know, your mother would whoop your ass if you did that. I know. My mother. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't until like, I don't know, senior year of high school when I, and or like freshman year of college, I reread my stories and I was like, this is messed up. This is 
this is not accurate to my experience. Why did I assume that this was the norm? Why did I want to aspire for this kind of lifestyle? And it just goes to show that a lot of these, you know, representations and these images that we're so, that we're being fed with, it's like, like you said, Jessica, we're, kids are impressionable. They're going to like absorb these images and assume that they're normal and aspire and want those kind of uh, lives, like lives. You know? Dude, shoes on the carpet cannot be the dream, y'all. Like that cannot be the dream. No. Yeah, I feel like going off of that like makes me think of like two um, big things that I think we've been like circling around. The first is like kind of like how far have we really come? Because like I do think that like there have been like great strides if we can call them that like in like the representation game like I think we have movies like Crazy Rich Asians or like I don't know like shows like Fresh Off the Boat it's interesting to me that I think the majority of things where like Asian people have representation are like are like the center of like that storyline it's like it's not like it's like the other characters a lot of times are like other Asian people as opposed to like having white people like on the fringes of those stories which I don't know. I think like that's, I think about like that with other people of color too, like with like the Black Panther becoming so big or like with like Tyler Perry's like Meet the Browns, like all of those shows like center like, like people of color, but then they have like other people of color surrounding those characters. So it's like still, because I still don't think like we are the stars when it comes to comparing us to white people very often. I also like a lot of times think about like when we are given roles, like I don't, again, like I get it, like because of the scarcity of like those roles. Like, when I think about, like, have I ever really seen, like, an Indian person, like, being represented as queer in any, like, mainstream Asian American, like, film or, like, television? Like, no. Like, that's just, like, the answer to that is, like, I really can't think of, like, basically anyone unless it's, like, super, like, not mainstream. And then, like, I think about, like, the way that, like, that probably influences so many of the actions and so many of, like, the thought processes of, like, all of these, like, young children. Like, I feel like they don't think that that kind of like behavior is appropriate or they're like, Oh, Indian people, they're not gay. Like they, that's just not a thing that Indian people do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Going off of that, Nina, that just made me think of how, like, as you're saying, I just feel like a lot of Asian American characters, even recently, like they're still pretty quote unquote normal. And I feel like, I feel like I see like two different branches of that representation where like, one is, as you mentioned, like, it's all about Asian people. Um, and it's as if they're, like, completely segregated from the rest of U.S. society. Like, we just exist in our own bubble. And then the other type is where, like, like, I was thinking sort of of To All the Boys I've Loved Before and how, like, everyone else at her school is white. And she, mm. like it's briefly touched on that what like her mom was Korean. Right. But like, you don't really Oh, she's get... half white. Isn't she? Yeah. She's mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Her dad. Yeah. So yeah. And, and you, and like the cult, like you don't really see much about like Korean culture ever. You don't. That yeah. So it's just like this Asian girl, like playing the main role in an otherwise white movie. And I know yeah, I've seen, I feel like, like some arguments that's like, oh, well, you know, we should have people of color just being like normal and it shouldn't always be about culture. And I get that. But at the same time, I'm like, is that really representative of what most of us experience? Like, 
Mm-hmm. We don't have to completely separate our culture from like the normal quote unquote mm-hmm. story. Um, and it's also, I, I feel like the more I think about this, the more I realize that that really affected how I perceived myself when I was younger, because I feel like for a long time, I always perceived myself. And I was so insecure about it as like boring. And you know, like one of the biggest stereotypes about Asian Americans is like, we're boring. We're not creative. We're like, we're all squares and we just follow the rules <laughs> and we live inside the box. Um, mm. We're not outspoken, things like that. And I feel like seeing that representation made me feel that way about myself. Like, oh, I, I can't be cool. Like, I can't have, like, a bold sense of fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not edgy. Like, I'm just so boring. And I feel like now, looking back, I'm starting to realize that race was a big part of that because I felt like I couldn't possibly be outside of the box because the only Asians that I saw on TV were also squares. (laughs) (laughs) Squares. That's a really good point. Yeah. I felt like with to all the boys I've loved before the main character, she just like, I feel like it just happened that she was Asian. Like, like Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like any part of the story. It was just like kind of accidental. Like, Oh, this is a story. And by the way, the main character is also like half Asian, but like, it doesn't play a big like role other than like the little tiny tidbits you would catch. Like, I think that she introduced like Yakult. Is that how you say it? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. She introduced that to like her like man or whatever. And like, that (laughs) is like one distinct thing. I remember but other than oh, yeah. that, it just felt like a an accidental thing, you know? In the second film, and the thing is, I will say, Jenny Han's books, these are movie adaptations of her books. If you read her books, her being Asian American is an integral part of her identity, and her culture mm. is much more infused. And also, I think there's a part of the fact that, you know, Lana Condor, she is fully Vietnamese. She's adopted by white parents, and originally when they were trying to cast this role, the white producers in charge wanted to cast a white girl as Lara Jean. And Jenny Han had to fight that. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny Han had to fight for that. And so, so I I think we also have to acknowledge that some of the struggles that creators run run into and the gatekeepers that are there to prevent the kind of representation that we want, because people are out there fighting. People are out there trying to get those stories told the stories that represent us and represent our experiences um but yeah going back to like johnny han's books like or specifically p.s i still love you in that book it's very explicitly like korean american like the culture is much more infused in the second book in my opinion especially in the beginning when she's you know wearing her um korean traditional dress and going to like um like korean holidays and celebrating them um but the thing is, in the movie, they not only did they erase like basically the entire plot of the original book that they were adapting it from, but they erased much of the Koreanness. So I think we also have to, like I said, like acknowledge these gatekeepers, what they're doing. Like they also replaced the director. That also had something to do with it. So it's like it's a struggle. Wow. Where it's a fight. Um, and I think about also like for people like why Alice Wu who directed um, Saving Face and the half of it on Netflix, why she chose to distribute her film on Netflix and not in theaters. The distribution plays a big part of it. And with the distribution, it affects who you're working with and how much money you get for your film and who the people, like who you can hire. Because I remember Alice Wu saying like, she would have been given a lot more money to make her film and have it distributed 
through like traditional theater um, places, but she would not have been able to tell the story that she wanted to tell if, and it also would not have reached the amount of people that she wanted to reach if she had distributed through theaters. But she knew that uh, like most of like the demographic that she was targeting, the story that she was trying to tell for the people that she was um, telling the story for had Netflix. So she chose to take like a smaller check for it to be distributed through Netflix and to tell the story that she wanted to tell. See, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't know that. And I think that's really important to know when I am trying to reflect on how I feel about to all the boys I loved before, because when Jessica was talking about, Oh, like the complex, like size of the argument, like I kind of was like, yeah, like maybe it's just supposed to be a story. That's like a kind of a white story, but you can have Asian American characters be in it. And like, that's, Maybe that's like the whole point of it, but no, it's not. It's super problematic, and they completely whitewash um, her culture and her identity. And I didn't know that. And now I feel like that has really helped me understand that. Like, yes, sure, there can be films where like Asian Americans are just there because we can just see diversity, and the stories don't have to necessarily be diverse. But a lot of this whitewashing is still going on. It's still very consistent, even in things that we think are supposed to be representative. Um, and especially like breaking those barriers, they're actually not. Okay, so something I think Jessica touched on a while ago was that I thought was like very interesting. Um, one big question is like, how does representation affect like the beauty standards that we create for ourselves, like as Asian American women, like growing up in America? I'm sure that like we've all definitely experienced things like growing up and like figuring that some of that stuff out for ourselves, and like maybe still figuring a lot of it out to be honest. I just want to say that, like, I think we receive, like, we just receive so many messages about what we're supposed to look like. And, I mean, so much of it is about the color of your skin, the shape of your nose, or, like, your eyes, like, certain facial features, um, like, your body weight, and, like, how being skinny is super important. And, like, um, I know before this, we all watched that video, um, Asian American women share struggles with beauty standards which I loved watching and they were all so beautiful. I was like obsessing over them while watching it. But um, they all touched on really different like ideals that we obviously all experienced growing up. Um, and I wanted to touch on the fact that like, <laughs> like I literally loved the beach so much and I loved the pool. And I was like growing up, I was really deprived of both of those things. And I like always associated like the pool and the beach with white people and it's a white thing to do. Um, and so like, whenever spring break would come around, like I would see like all my white friends or like people like in my school or whatever, like going to the beach. And I was like, I want to do that. Like, I want to go to the beach and I want to like, and it's just a weird thing. Cause like tanning isn't even good for your skin. And I'm like, I want to do that because it was like, that's what's cool. And that's what's normal. And that's what gets you like pretty skin and like whatever, even though the narrative that like me and like a lot of my Indian friends growing up or like Brown friends growing up got was that no, tanning is really bad. Being the sun is really bad. And it like makes your skin uglier. Yeah. Growing up, <clears throat> it was interesting because my mom would tell me like in Vietnam, they love uh, pale skin, right? It's uh, admired. It's uh, sought after. But in America, they love tan skin. So <laughs> like it was painted to me as it was marketed to me as like you get the best of both worlds, Teresa, because when you go, when, depending on what space you're in, you're going to be perceived as either darker or pale or compared to the people around you. 
And I mean, it just speaks to like colorism in our country, you know, where a lot of white people try to appear black and try to tan and darken their skin because that's the beauty standard. But it's like they appropriate it and they just take that aesthetic and they don't um, actually get to, they don't actually suffer the societal consequences of just being black, you know? And I think that can definitely apply to Asian Americans as well, who also exhibit and try to act black and try to appear black. I mean, it all connects into this idea of beauty standards because beauty standards can really expand and talk about, you know, how you behave, how you're expected to perform and act in society, as well as it goes along with your appearance. Yeah, I just want to say, like, Ahana, I also felt like those things growing up as well. And, like, I also was deprived of, like, going to the beach and, like, the pool and stuff. And, like, my mom, like, I remember these, very specific instances in which like I'd be going outside to play and like ride my bike or I don't know, do whatever like kids do. And my mom would just be like, don't be out in the sun for too long, go play in the shade instead. Um, and like, or she would like slather me with sunscreen or whatever. And like, obviously still use sunscreen. That's good for you. But like, I don't know, like telling a little kid that like they should stay out of the sun, they shouldn't play as much outside, they shouldn't do the things that they want to do, otherwise their skin's going to get dark, and then like I'm going to look not great, and then who's going to marry me? Like that's like kind of a lot of pressure to put on a like a small child, you know? (laughs) I like heard about these like things about like people not wanting to marry darker like Indian girls as a kid and it's like I don't want to be thinking about that shit right now like I don't care like I don't care right now and it's like also it doesn't matter now because like I'm 22 years old and I'm doing just fine with like going out into the sun and like having a slightly darker shade and I'm also still pretty light-skinned like I am not a dark-skinned gal but like just hearing my mom like say all these things also like another antidote is that like my mom is, like, one of those, like, Ayurvedic, like, natural, like, stuff. So she never made me use, like, Fair and Lovely because she knew that that had, like, bleaching components to it. And bleaching for skin is, like, bad and, like, is unhealthy. But because she's, like, more of an Ayurvedic natural, like, type person, she always, like, when she was, like, trying to get me to, like, wash my, wash my face and stuff, she would, like, get me to use lemon and, like, like all these acidic things to like lighten my skin. And she'd be like, Oh, it's healthy for you. It's good. But like lemon, like literally is acid on my skin and it's like still a lightening component. And it's just, it's just so crazy that like, as a child, I was told to like wear all these things and like have face masks, not just to like have healthy skin, but to have like lighter white skin, which is just nuts. And yogurt. Yeah. And yogurt. I just want to say that, Literally, the other day, I was on the phone with my mom, and I was asking her, um, like, I was like, oh, I'm breaking out a lot. Like, what kind of, like, home face mask should I make? And I said, mom, I don't want anything skin lightening. I don't care about that stuff. Like, I just want, like, just something for skincare, maybe with turmeric in it. Like, let me know. And she literally was mm-hmm. like, oh, just rub lemon on your face. And I was like, mom, I, I know what you're trying to do. Oh, my like, God. But it was... It was even, like, the thing where, like, it's so socialized in her. Like, she doesn't see a difference between skincare and skin lightening. It's the same thing. Like, you taking care of your skin and your looks is you taking care of how the color of your skin. And, like, that is just Mm -hmm. so ingrained that, like, I just feel like her generation and, like, a lot in our generation, like, it's hard to see a difference. Something else that I was thinking about, like, like, also in relation to, like, 
not skin lightness, I guess, but like something that I've been thinking about a lot that I used to be super, super embarrassed about is like having really, really thick hair and having really thick eyebrows and like thick facial hair. Um, like when I was growing up, like I think like in second grade, some like boy was like, and this is like so obviously things like this stick with you where like somebody's like, oh my God, it's like you have a mohawk on your arm. And I was like, oh, so no, they did looking not. Back, what? Looking back, it's like really funny. But then I think about it. And I'm like, honestly, like, I used to like look, like, again, like, look at like the people that were being represented in the media. And I was like, oh, I want my hair to be like looking way thinner. Like, I would want to thin my hair out. And like, when I went to like the salon, like, I was at, like, I would always like get a haircut that like kind of like, like underdid how thick my hair like looked. And it was like over time, I would like straighten it like so much that it's like lost its like thickness or lost its like quality. And like, it's really interesting now because I feel like, having really, really thick eyebrows is, like, super in because, like, people like mm-hmm, Kylie Jenner yeah. who are, like, spicy white, like, made it uh, in or, like, <laughs> having really, really thick like, really, really thick hair is, like, super in now because, like, because, like, white people have popularized, like, okay, now having thick hair is, like, really cool. Now having thick eyebrows is really cool. But I'm like, what the fuck? I already ruined my hair. So I can't have any hair. <laughs> <laughs> trying too hard to be white. Oh, my God. Okay, so two things. One, the arm hair thing, like, spoke to me and like awakened memories that I swear to God I had buried so deep <laughs> inside. But like when I was little, I was so self-conscious of like all of the hair on my arm because like Indians have fucking hair. Like that's our thing. And like, we, like that's <laughs> our thing. <laughs> like all the white kids would always make so much fun of like my hairy ass arms. And like, I wasn't self-conscious about it until they said something about it. And I remember this one specific instance where I told my mom about it. And my mom was like, Oh, we can fix that. So my mom, at this point, I wasn't like shaving or anything like that. At this point I was waxing. My mom waxed all of the hair off of my arms. And I came to school one day without like any arm hair like I was just I was just I was happy I was like this is all gone like everything's good and then the fucking white girl next to me is like why don't you have any hair on your arm like why like, <gasps> and I was just like oh my god oh, I literally you can't win you can't, can't win, win. I, I literally was like, oh, my God, I went through all of that fucking pain. And now y'all aren't happy that I have zero arm hair. Like, there's no winning. You should and have then, like, a couple another, strands. <laughs> I know. I should have. I really should have. Or just bleached it, you know, so they couldn't really see it. Although, I guess, against dark skin, it would just be shiny. So, oh, I don't know. So oh. <laughs> but then another antidote. My, like, long, like, I used to have such long, thick hair because, like, that's, like, a thing in Indian communities too, where your parents are just like, have long thick hair because then people will marry you and you look better that way. Like my parents <laughs> are still like that. And like, I used to like braid or my mom used to braid my hair. So it would just be a thick ass rope of hair on like the back of my, like on my back. And like the boys would always like play with my hair and like whip it as in like, yeah, like, the, the freaking white boys but they would like literally whip my hair because it was a long oh. braid and they would be like you're like a horse and like oh, oh my god it pissed me off oh. and then like I went to cut it off like anytime I go to a hair salon that's not like an Indian hair salon it like fucking like hurts me to my core because they're just like oh my god you have such long thick beautiful hair why do you want to cut all of it off just keep it 
And I think that was like the first time that I realized that like my hair was like good in some places, but like not good for a lot of things. I don't know. I mean, whatever you said, just like a w- triggered everything. <laughs> yeah. Only good. Yeah, it's like such a relatable head. experience. And can we talk about like the like the validation that goes into having white people acknowledge like your beauty? Because I feel like that was something I really struggled with when I was younger. Um, and I'm sure that's like a relatable experience. And like, even I'm just reflecting on what I said earlier in this podcast episode about lemonade mouth. And I was like, whoa, seeing the Indian girl, like get the hot white guy. And I was like, wait, like, and then I'm thinking about Charlotte boys I love before and like her love interest being like the hot white guy. And I was like, wait, what the, what the fuck? Like, why is that like a trope that's like so important? And it's like, why is it that like my, that like, like I'm validated to think by a white person more than like people of color. Like, what does that mean about, like, the power dynamics that come into, like, beauty and beauty standards? It's it's crazy. But I think also part of that is, like, the dominant narrative that, like, you should end up with someone that looks like you. Because, like, I'm from a rural Georgia town. And, like, there was me and, like, one other person. And he was a guy. And he happened to be my best friend because our families were friends or whatever. Because we're the only fucking Indians here. And, like, everyone around me was just like, oh, y'all should date. Mind you, we're in elementary school and everyone's just like, you guys should date. Or some people just took that extra step and was like, oh my God, you guys are already dating. That's so cute. And it's just like, we were friends and like my parents are already kind of iffy about the whole dating, not iffy, they're against the whole dating thing. And so my parents would hear these things like from like my teachers or like people around them. And they'd be like, yes, from teachers. And they'd be like, oh, you guys are so cute together. Like, they're adorable together. And it's like, why the fuck? And so, like, I think I internalized that and was just like, wait a second. No, that's not what we all do. We don't just date each other all the damn time. And so then, like, my, like, dream, not dream, but, like, whatever, the thing I aspired to was then, like, now I have to date the, like, most white person out there so that I don't have to be seen as, like, dating Indians all the time. Mm-hmm. White people I really love that we both of us are dating Indian people. <laughs> <laughs> that also made me think about so um I have been dancing for like my whole life and part of that is like doing really heavy stage makeup for recitals. And I just remember like that's sort of what launched me into going down this rabbit hole of like the beauty YouTube world from middle school through high school I was like deep in there y'all like I followed so many YouTubers and I spent way (laughs) too much time watching makeup tutorials and like all of them were white and I kept like you know I started getting more into makeup and finding it really fun and then I kept trying to like recreate the looks that they were doing and I was like this doesn't look good on me. And it's because they have a crease in their eyelid that I literally do not have. Mm. And Mm. like, I mean, this goes into like double eyelid surgery and all those things, but it's just like from the beginning, I never learned how to like do makeup to suit my face until I had to like figure it out by myself slowly. And yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. Like everybody's like, 
blend this. Like, this is your crease shade. Now use a big fluffy brush and blend that into your crease. And I'm like, where? (laughs) (laughs) Y'all know the stereotype of the Asian baby girl? Where it's like ABGs. Yeah, like those beautiful Asian girl, like skinny Asian girls with long black hair and like a, like a heavy makeup. And they, it's, and they, like, they pose like their Instagram feed is just pictures of themselves, which I mean, granted my Instagram is just pictures of myself too, (laughs) but it's like, like, it's like a very specific image. Um, And they look like, I've always kind of interpreted the ABG stereotype as sort of like a weird modern version of like the docile uh uh passive asian girl stereotype it's just like a more modern version of that because you know asian baby girls don't look threatening they just they look like they can be i don't know their beautifulness is made to be consumed by white guys you know and i just remember like in high school, wanting so badly to look like an ABG and wanting to look very like submissive and wanting to look non-threatening because all my life, like especially in middle school, I was told that I was really, uh, how to put it lightly, uh, like a like a riot. Like I was just like out of my seat, like bonkers. Like I was just, I was always out of my seat. I was like screaming at the top of my lungs. I was, I was just like <laughs> really, I was nuts, right? And essentially, I was always told in middle school, like, I was too much and that I needed to dial it in and that I was kind of off-putting for some people and that I was just too wild and I was too, I was just too hyper and, and I was aggressive, you know, all that stuff. And I just remember in high school being like, I need to be less aggressive. I need to be less dominant. I need to look more like super I need to look beautiful and I need to look non-threatening so that meant I had to learn I had to watch YouTube tutorials and learn how to do makeup really really good wear like those falsies and do heavy eyeliner and make it make sure it looks perfect and wear like off the shoulder shirts and look and either go either look like an ABG ABG or look like a supreme hype beast ABG y'all know what that is and uh, like uh, champion supreme like brand names and Jordans and you know be one of the guys you know kind of thing. And I just remember being like you know facilitating you know between those uh, or not facilitating but you know swinging between those two like images. And I struggled so hard. I remember just like copying and trying to dress like all of those older Asian girls who look like ABG looked so much like them, and to fix myself to be just like them. And it wasn't until college when I really found my own style and just started dyeing my hair, started cutting and, you know, doing whatever shit I wanted to do and started to find, you know, dress however I wanted to dress. And it wasn't until then when I realized, like, I really wish I hadn't, I didn't, I really wish I hadn't gone through that just because I really struggled with finding my own identity. And I tried to put myself into a box. They didn't put me in a box. I, I put myself into a box because I felt like, I needed to in order to be accepted in order to seem cool in order to be popular and have a lot of friends I will say I'm not going to agree with you saying that you put yourself in a box and they didn't put you in the box they put you in that box they created this entire society where there are boxes that we were put in I appreciate that get a muscle some you know yeah I appreciate that 
curious that you just reminded me. I like completely forgot about this until now. But I, my final paper for NAF was about the ABG, and oh my, my thesis was literally the ABG functions as a new stereotype of Asian American womanhood that seeks to assimilate Asian American women into white American constructions of beauty, sexuality, and femininity. Damn! Wow. Give me that paper, man. CC that to me. I want it. I want to read that. I feel like that's also the sort of stereotype, like the new modern Asian, like how Asian girls are represented in media. Like, you know, the beautiful Asian girl that has all her shit together, looks gorgeous. She's, you know, like strutting, hustling, doing all that stuff, looking super fl- Like I think of, um, what's her name? Lucy Liu from, but she, especially in the movie, uh, set it up from Netflix. Have you guys seen that film? Yeah, yeah. In that film. I mean, she looks bomb ass. Like her suits, please give them to me. She looks amazing. But also, I feel like they, where it just seemed like she had it all together. Also, I mean, she had flaws. Definitely the film acknowledged the character's flaws. But it just seemed like she was like this heightened version, um, I don't know, of this Asian representation that where Asian women are expected to be perfect and and have everything together and you know be the shit and not be allowed to mess up and to be messy i have a quick question for y'all okay it might not be that quick but like (laughs) i've been trying to and maybe this is just something that i need to do more research on because i'm sure there's a lot of work on it out there but i've been thinking a lot about like where a lot of these like beauty standards and specifically colorism come from because we all just talked about how like our own family members and specifically a lot of times our mothers are like the most immediate source of that messaging for us and you know like my my quickest conclusion was like oh it's it's colonialism and it's just because we like imported white european eurocentric beauty standards but part of me also wonders because i feel like some of it like also could predate colonialism. Like I know fair skin was like always valued in China long before any white people showed up. And I think part of that is like class because if you were rich, you could afford to stay indoors and you didn't have to go outside and work in the sun and get tan. Um, but at, so yeah, I'm trying to grapple with like how much of this, and I know it's like impossible to quantify, but like what parts of this are coming from a colonial legacy and what parts are you know, we just have to accept that, like, people of color are also colorists, and, like, we can, on our own, like, perpetuate these, like, you know, discriminatory ideas, um, because I think wholly attributing it to colonialism can also sort of erase, like, the agentic participation of our own communities and our own families in perpetuating colorism. I mean, I personally, like, do think that, like, it's simplifying the problem to say that it's completely from like colonial or imperialist roots, because at least in India, I can definitely see that like colorism predates like colonization from like the British. And like, there's definitely a pull towards like light skinned people being deemed more attractive. Like even like the oldest depictions of like Hindu gods, they like paint in like Hindu gods as like blue. If they're super dark, light skinned, like goddesses are still preferable to like dark skinned goddesses and things like that. So I don't know like I think that's like a really good point is like not always like like we ourselves definitely have like those racist tendencies or just to add to the um conversation about 
Hindu gods, like one goddess, Kali, like she, Kali literally means like black and um, she's like the evil eye. Like that's her, that's like kind of her role as a goddess. Um, so that's super interesting. The fact that like the one goddess with like dark skin or one god goddess with like darker skin um, who like we acknowledge that has darker skin is like a negative presence. Not always, but that's a so kind of emulation of her person. So that yeah. What I've noticed, <clears throat> like these conversations about colorism have made me think about like again, tying it back to our earlier conversation about representation. Like not only are we getting few Asian American representation, but we're getting a very specific type of Asian American representation. And I'm sure all of you guys have touched on this and know about this, but oftentimes it's East Asians who are being represented in media. It's Chinese, uh, Korean, and Japanese people who are getting represented. And not, I mean, we touched on upon this in previous podcast and previous episodes where Indian Americans aren't even considered Asian. So they're not even like, even if we get Indian American representation in whatever shape or form, it's not even categorized under like these articles and lists and conversations about Asian American representation. And then, you know, coming from a Southeast Asian perspective, like Southeast Asians are not included in representation. We, we barely have any Filipino or any Vietnamese or any Cambodian or Laotian um, representation. We could have had like Singaporean representation in crazy rich Asians, but we did not. Um, so, and it is, it's just interesting. I feel like, like the stuff that we see in media and films and TV, the kind of Asians that are being preferred and being represented as well as biracial, um, like specifically, uh, Asians who are half white and half Asian are also being represented in media more predominant, like more disproportionately than any other biracial Asians. Um, we, it's like these beauty standards are perpetuated and reinforced through the media representations we see. And also like kind of on that same point, but thinking about like South Asians, like when we think about South Asians, like Indians are the ones that are represented. And usually it's like North Indians too. It's not even like South Indian. And then like you forget about like Sri Lanka and like Pakistan and Bangladesh and all of these other countries that also deserve equal representation, but don't have it. And the only people that they have are like us Indians. And it's like, I'm sure that that is also like, um, alienating in and of itself. Yeah. I also kind of want to like, like kind of like br- bridging this to the end, but like say that like one of my like personal things that I've been doing recently um, is like when I use social media. Okay. So backstory used to what I would do is like, I follow all of these like models and they all be like white models. Like they'd all be these gorgeous white Instagram models. And I'd always like love everything that they post. Right. And something that I've been more conscious about doing recently is like being very purposeful in finding Asian like models, like South Asian models, Bangladeshi, like Pakistani, Indian, like Sri Lankan models who I follow on Instagram, because honestly, like even that makes me feel more seen when my feed is full of these like beautiful, like gorgeous people who look a lot more like me than like the white people I used to follow. And, like, I think that that is one thing that we can, like, do by ourselves is, like, support those people and, like, 
it sucks that we kind of have to go out of our way to find those people. But like when we do find them, I think it's like kind of important to like hold on to it and like create that network of like people that we look up to. Yeah. I think that's a really good point for sure. Wait, Sachi, drop some um, of their names. Oh my gosh. I have to go on my Instagram. I'll do that in the rec section. How about that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But it does seem that we're like getting to the end of our episode. So, um, does anybody want to like make some recommendations for our listeners for this week? I'm like trying to find them right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I have a recommendation for, it's this book called Funny Boy um, by Sean Salvadori. Salvadori, I think is the person. But um, yeah, so it's called Funny Boy. And I loved it because it's about um, a Sri Lankan boy. They like, live in Sri Lanka. Um, and it's actually a coming out story. So it's titled Funny Boy because his community and like his family members would like be like, I hope you don't turn out funny. Like that was kind of like their way of saying queer. And um, I love queer stories that's that, like are central to Asian American experiences. So like that was super special um, reading about his experience with realizing that he was gay. And um, especially in the time of this, I think it's like on his own two story. I think the, the author, the writer, like that was his story. But um, Sri Lanka at the time, like, was going through, like, not official but civil war. And so just talking about, like, war and, like, family dynamics and, like, marriage dynamics. um, Colorism is in there, like, class dynamics um, with his whole coming out story was so, so cool. And I very much recommend that because it was, even though I'm not Sri Lankan, it was cool to, like, read about a culture that was, like, kind of similar. And I could relate to a lot of things that they were saying. Um, so yeah, if you're Sri Lanka or not, you should read the book. It's really good. I'm so glad, um, Ahana, you mentioned a queer Asian American story because I plugged this in, in our, at the end of our first podcast and I'm going to plug it again because it just came out, um, a couple days before we, uh, recorded this podcast, but the half of it directed by Alice Wu just premiered so and dropped good. on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet, so but I'm still going to recommend it because I've heard only good things about it. And I think, you know, just to kind of sum up about this whole conversation that we're having about representation, about beauty standards, and about the stuff that we're engaging with, um, I think it's really important that we uplift content made by creators from our community. Um, like, I, I really think that we need to support content made by people from our community for our community and engaging in conversations that only our community can understand. Um, Because, you know, watching the half of it, like I felt like she made this for people like her and to talk about these kind of issues and to come together and just celebrate queer Asian American identity. And I think that's amazing. And I think we need to uplift that more and um, encourage more creators to be brave and more gatekeepers to get the hell out of the way and let these stories be told. (laughs) As someone who like has watched that film, I can definitely say that it is everything that Teresa is like hyping it up to be like, it is an amazing film. And honestly, like I'm going to be real with you. I felt more seen in that movie, even though it was representing a Chinese American protagonist than I did in um, Never Have I Ever, because like in the movie, 
this isn't like a spoiler or anything, but she's from like a rural town. And like, I am also from a rural town and like some of the experiences that she had as had as being like an quote other in this like predominantly white town just like resonated with me so much that I, I just love that movie. So yes, definitely, definitely watch the half of it. Um, in terms of recommendations for people to follow on Instagram um, and kind of going on that same pathway of like plugging like queer creators. Um, these, this is a couple that like I followed, I think about a year ago, but like I freaking love them. Um, it's Sufi Mal- Malik. I think that's how you pronounce it. I believe she is Pakistani Muslim. Um, and she is dating this uh, Hindu Indian, I believe, Anjali Chakra. And she, <laughs> like, yeah, there's, like, so many dynamics going on. They talk about all of that. They, like, I know that there are some familial issues that I think that both of them have had to, like, go through um, with the whole, like, Hindu-Muslim issue thing and, like, also the Pakistani-India issue thing. But, like, they're two creators that they're just, like, number one, they're gorgeous people. Number two, they, like, create this beautiful, like, Instagram, like, I guess, front. And I don't know. It's, like, beautiful to see, like, represent- like queer representation and, like, see gorgeous, like, content created by people that look like me. So, yeah, two people I would definitely follow. Um, I'm not sure what else they do. <laughs> this is, sounds bad. Like, they don't have to do anything else. I know that Sufi's, like, an art teacher, which is really cool. I'm not exactly sure what Anjali does. Um, but they're really awesome people. So follow them on Instagram. Sorry, I I just thought of one. Um, it's a little bit old. I guess it's not that old. 2020 has just felt really long. But it is the film The Farewell. Um, I definitely have mixed feelings about Aquafina or Nora Lum. Um, definitely sort of capitalized on the whole performance of blackness to make her way to the top. So, you know, we, we, we can talk about that in representation 2.0, <laughs> but the film itself I thought was really well done. It was really relatable. It is about a Chinese American girl who um, travels back to her parents' hometown when her grandma gets sick and so it talks a lot about just navigating intergenerational gaps and language barriers, but also cultural differences um, and juggling, you know, individualism and collectivism as a second gen Asian American. So I thought it was really beautiful and really touching. Oh, I really want to watch that, actually. OK, well, thank you all so much for listening and um, definitely keep a lookout for our fifth and final episode coming soon about mental health and self-care. Um, especially in relation to COVID-19 today, um, led by Hana. So keep a lookout. Woo! Thanks so much. Uh-huh. Bye! Bye.